This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. This year, I've been highlighting some of our public affairs and short features programs and their hosts, hoping to give you a better idea of the expertise and experience that goes into the shows and how they're put together, with hopes that you'll be inspired to listen and maybe even consider doing a show here at WERU yourselves. I spoke first to Tom Yaroschuk. He's the host of The Cosmic Curator, a short feature on astrology that airs on Saturday mornings at 7.30 during the Saturday morning coffeehouse programs. We'll start with his most recent report, which aired a few days ago on July 29th, and then we'll pick up my conversation with Tom. Good morning, people. This is your Cosmic Curator, Tom Yaroschuk, with a look at the stars for today, July 29th and the week ahead, as seen through the lens of Vedic astrology. That's the astrology of India. Hey, Matt, maybe we should start with a little Ravi Shankar and the sound of a 64-string sitar going forward. Anyway, now, in the language of astrology, there are four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And each of the seven planets, the sun, moon, Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn, all have an element in which they love to express their energies and an element where it's not so much. Now this morning, and for most of yesterday, the moon, that heavenly body which remembers the past and is the significator of emotions, is in its least favorite sign. It's the sign of Scorpio. Yeah, Scorpio is the least happy place for the moon. That's because the moon in Scorpio often feels the feelings of loss, even before a loss is experienced. Scorpio also has a reputation for tumultuous emotions and, in extreme cases, a psychological crisis. That's because Scorpio is a sign of birth and death and ultimately transformation. Well, somebody's got to do it. It takes two and a half days for the moon to move through a sign. So once every 28 days, the length of a lunar cycle begun at the new moon, the moon will stir up the Scorpio energy. And Scorpio has a sting at the end of its tail. So when the moon leaves the sign of Scorpio, you may feel a pinch. Well, so what to expect? Well, people often feel the feelings of loss, loss of those loved ones and the loss of, well, even places and things. With the sun in Cancer, another water sign, it's energizing the moon's feeling with a 120-degree aspect called a trine. And with yet another planet in a water sign, that would be Neptune in Pisces, the emotional nature is further fueled with even deeper stirrings. Neptune is a planet of inspiration, imagination, but also delusion. Oh, so that emotional nature that we all have to go through today and tomorrow may feel a little beat up. Now, when we look at what the other planets are up to by their position in signs and elements, we get even more information. Venus, for example, the planet of love, art, creativity, romance, and money is going backwards or retrograde in Leo, the fiery fixed fire sign. Venus doesn't really express its energies in a personal way in Leo. It's kind of selfish. Venus will express the energy here typically of a relationship review because that's what retrogrades do. You go back over stuff and you look at it. 
So you may be wondering or questioning yourself about how you handled a romance or a marriage or finances or your creativity. Added to that, Venus is going into the mystical nakshatra of Maga. That's a place between the fire of Leo and the water of Cancer. It can be a very confusing time and the ancient astrologers of India called it the Gadanta, the karmic knot. Oh boy, are you reading old love letters today? Missing someone that was special in your life? Oh boy, with Venus passing Mercury, the planet of thinking, these two planets feed on each other. So when Venus and Mercury dance together, it's like thoughts of love. So you could be really thinking about something very special that's no longer in the present. Now elsewhere on the sky, Mars is in a fixed fire sign of Leo, where normally it roars its Martian energy to lead, rule, and conquer. But in this instance, its energies are stymied by dour. Hey, not so fast. Saturn in Aquarius. Saturn in Aquarius is opposite Mars, and it's throwing its icy fixed sign energy right on it. That is famous for creating frustration. And in the birth charts of some people, well, they'll break a bone, tear a muscle, or have some other such injury because the force of Mars meets the resistance of Saturn. When that happens, gravity always wins. Now, come Sunday, the moon moves out of Scorpio into the ever-optimistic mutable sign of Sagittarius, oh, a fire sign as well. The moon here is much happier, composting the dark feelings of Scorpio into a hopeful way forward. The Sag moon is further energized by Mars and Jupiter, also in fire signs. All that means that the feelings come and go and the moody moods change, like the fog that rolls in and off the Penobscot. Finally, in the Celtic calendar, Tuesday, August 1st is a big holiday. It's Lunasa. Say it again, Lunasa. The festival of the harvest. It's marked by the sun crossing the celestial midpoint between the summer and winter solstice. So channel your inner druid energies and dance in what's normally called the Midsummer's Night Dream. Well, that's it for this edition of the Cosmic Curator. And remember the cosmic disclaimer. It's a wise person who rules their stars, a fool who is ruled by them. See you next week right here on 89.9 FM Blue Hill or streaming around the globe at weru.org. Over and out. That was last Saturday's edition of The Cosmic Curator, a short feature produced by my guest today, Tom Yaroshuk. Do you want to start by just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about the story that brought you here to WERU? Sure. So the story begins in a visit to Stonington several years ago. It was the first vacation I had taken, and I wanted to have a wonderful 4th of July in Maine, and my wife and I hadn't been able to travel because of the fact that our stepson was very, very sick and we couldn't leave him alone. So finally, we were at a point where we can go on a vacation and all the usual places in Maine were booked up. So there was a place somewhere on Deer Isle, wherever that was, and we drove and we drove and we got here. And when we came here, we just fell in love with Stonington, Maine. And then as we were in Stonington, Maine, there was this great radio station, WERU, that reminded me so much of my days in Boston when I grew up listening to WBCN, which was a very famous FM station that was groundbreaking at the time and was even cited by the FCC for playing cuts from Working Man's Dead by the Grateful Dead over 
a Nixon speech, which was hilarious, but it resulted in a fine and a, and a, and some citations. So I just I just really fell in love with WERU, and I um, sent in some money during a fundraiser, and I got back a lovely personal note, which I didn't expect. And uh, it was very, very personal and very heartwarming. And out of that, I just had this idea that, hmm, I wonder if they'd like a str- an astrology segment. Because again, on WBCN, there was an astrologer named Daryl Martini, who was a cosmic muffin. And I have been a student of astrology since I was the age of 12. So I've always studied it and tried to understand why people are the way they are. So I had I had a background in that. And uh, while it was mostly a hobby, because by training and career, I, I've been a television producer for most of my life, working in radio and television and having shows on the network and syndicated and cables and all that stuff. So as I retired in Stonington, WERU was very gracious in offering an opportunity for these wonderful little segments on Saturday. And the name we came up with was the Cosmic Curator. So I'm the Cosmic Curator, Tom Yarishuk. And, and uh, you know, as a writer, we love alliteration. So Cosmic Curator has some alliteration to it. And a curator is, you know, like, yeah, he curates a lot of information. So that's what I do. Every, every day I look at where the stars are and where the stars are moving. I've studied Western astrology and Vedic astrology, which is the astrology of India. And you're able to kind of see how, you know, astrology has been used for, for thousands of years in many different cultures as people try to understand why things happen. You know, why is there war? Why is there peace? We all know that famous song that Pete Seeger used to sing about to every season there is a season, a time to gather, a time to part, a time, you know, a time for war, a time for peace, all those things. And astrology is kind of a way to look at the the movement of the seasons and the cycles of the planets and the to see what's sort of going on in the heavens that seems to have an effect on the world here, the mundane world below. So, um, yeah, and what's really interesting is that, you know, as a television producer, I was able to really meet a lot of people and make a living doing interviews. It's kind of funny because in my first phase of my professional career, I was in advertising in New York City in the the 70s. Oh, dear, was that a wild time? You know, Studio 54 and all kinds of other shenanigans. But I remember going to a very famous psychic who said that I would make a living doing interviews. And at that time, it seemed pretty remote, but lo and behold, that's how things worked out. I got a job in Boston at uh, some TV stations there, and and it was like uh, being a, a duck in water. I just, I just love the environment and the vibe and the idea of meeting people and talking to people and and really the the amazing power of stories. I mean, stories are amazing because they inspire, they entertain, they educate, they inform. You know, it's, it's one of the, you know, my favorite things in the world is to hear people's stories. And what I've discovered is that everybody has one, you know, whether it's a comic book kind of story or an encyclopedia of some amazing family history. In fact, uh, one of the things I'm doing as a volunteer is working with the, the Hancock Hospice Group 
and we're developing a pilot where people who are actively dying, how's that for a phrase, will will tell their stories. You know, what 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 wisdom there is. You know, in, in the American culture, you know, we're sort of enchanted by youth and beauty. If you look at what's on television, it's like everyone's beautiful and everyone's young. And the talk shows at night will always have people that have a new book out, a new movie out, a new something out. But what's amazing is to pay attention to that other end of the population where people are aging and getting older and actually have a lot of experience and wisdom to share. It's kind of funny because if you go to other parts of the world, you know, as I have, especially the Far East, old age is revered. You know, in, 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 in Japan, if you are in a career for 50 years, you get what's called a, a jubilee year, and you're honored and take the year off, and, you know, you're saluted for your whatever your life's work happens to be. So it's just being able to find those stories, and whether it's in, in a hospice situation or, you know, throughout this beautiful state of Maine where people have been here for generations and have so much wisdom derived from, you know, a state that's pretty pretty pure compared to, you know, other places that seem to be one continuous shopping mall. Nothing wrong with shopping malls, but it's great to have, I think, more more trees and more ocean and more of the natural world. So you're here permanently in Maine now? Yeah, I decided to retire in Maine. I had a lot of friends that said, you should go to Florida. So I decided to change my friends <laughs> and... uh you know, have found that the the beauty here is is stunning, and I think that it's good for the soul. I think that if you can surround yourself with beauty and community and people that have your back, I mean, I remember when I lived in New York City. I lived in New York City for about mm, five or six years. That's all I could take. No, you know, there was no eye contact. You didn't know the people that lived next door. It was, you know, it was just a diff- it was just a very like social media, it wasn't very social at all, despite the fact that it had, you know, 10 million people in it. But but yeah, so Maine is just a beautiful place to retire. Sonnington is a stunning place. It's the number one fishing port in the in the country, you know, where people make a living any way they can. And quite honestly, there's a lot of a lot of integrity here. Kind of interesting, but by and large, people are very honest. You mentioned the cosmic muffin that you had met him, Daryl Martini. Yes, Daryl Martini. So I, when I began producing talk shows, I sort of had this carte blanche to have anybody on the show that I wanted to have on. So it was like, it was like being able to have. Um, oh, I think I'll meet so and so. And so one of the people I invited on was uh, I'll never forget the show. It had Sonny Joe White, who was a program director of Kiss at the time. Little Richard. Oh my God, Little Richard, what a hoot! And Daryl Martini, the cosmic muffin. Daryl Martini was a Western astrologer that did a segment every day and was famous for telling you if the day was going to be either a 1 or a 10. And it never got to be a 10. It was usually around average. And he would base his predictions on uh, the positions of the moon. But whether the predictions were, you know, predictions could never be accurate for an entire population because everybody's birth chart is different and certain things are triggered and certain things are not triggered. It was very entertaining and always had a little bit of wisdom which is the most important thing. We all could use a little bit of uplifting and insight, which I try to draw in from you know, the different things that I've read and collected in my experience over time. 
I don't know how many other listeners right now have heard of him, but those of us who grew up in Portland at a certain time heard the Cosmic Muffin on WBLM. So Cosmic Curator, we've been joking with you a little bit. Uh, the, the last Cosmic few Scone or the Cosmic Donut, <laughs> yeah. Well, Daryl took that... Crumpet, f- crumpet, if you want to be... Uh, uh, crumpet, that's really funny, yeah. Well, Daryl Martini took that from a poem. I don't know who wrote the poem or what the line was in the poem, but it's, it was something that that urged people to have some type of believe in something, you know, the power of the belief, although that can be a little dangerous. What you believe in is, you know, watch out what yes. you think. But the way he ended it was, even if it's a cosmic muffin. So he, he definitely vibed to that. Planet of belief is Jupiter. And one of the things that, you know, when you take astrology classes, you learn is that beliefs can be tricky. You know, they can be inclusive, where you love everybody, or they can be exclusive, where it's like, nope, we don't like those people. And uh, so you always have to question your thinking and question your beliefs, which if you look at how the stars move, there are definitely periods of time when you get a chance to rethink everything, whether it's relationship or job or career, where you live or how you make a living. You know, it's just sort of built into the ebb and flow of the zodiac. How do you pull this information together? Is there some place that you look at astronomy or how? Just, I have no idea how how this Yeah, that's a very good question. First of all, there are all kinds of systems of how to read the stars. You know, there's a Western system, there's a medieval system, there's a Greek system, a Babylonian system. The the system I use is the Indian system, the Vedic system. And that has a much more spiritual uh, weave to the tapestry there. But it begins with the notion that you're born at a point in time where where the celestial influences, the things that sort of shape your character and your destiny are most suitable to your evolution on a spiritual path to come to a realization of what life is all about and what is life all about. Well, that's a long discussion, but the starting point is like where you were born. What are the characteristics that that influence you? And as you know, as we all know, as we go through time, if you keep your eyes open and stay aware and be mindful, you can grow and you can evolve. I mean, that doesn't always true. Some people grow old without growing up. But for the most part, you look at a chart to see where a person starts off. You look at where they are in their life. There are things called transits, which are the positions of the stars as they move around the heavens on a day-to-day basis. So if I were looking at your chart, I'd look at the positions of the stars where you were born, where the stars are now in the sky, and then something that's very specific to Indian astrology, to Vedic astrology, which are called dashes or cycles. And what that is, is it's a certain planetary cycle that has a prominence in your life. So the way to explain that is like if you if you look at an apple tree, you know, that apple tree won't be able to produce an apple until it grows and has a seed and time goes by. So the idea that a cycle, a dasha cycle, can only yield the karma that you have earned through previous lives, because Vedic astrology believes in reincarnation, and is released at the appropriate time. So when you look at a person's life and you see that they have these kind of amazing chapters where they go from maybe 
being a social worker to being, you know, a, a news and public affairs director, it's like, well, what what turned? Oh, I see. Well, asking for a friend. It had, uh, yeah, it's like, oh, they must be in a Mercury Dasha, and what's really important is they want to get to the bottom line truth about something. So we all we all have these cycles, and we see it all the time in, in people's lives, in terms of how a life unfolds, how relationships unfold. So that's sort of the principle. The principle is you look at where you were born, where you start, the starting point, the cycles that you go through as you evolve in hopefully wisdom and great awareness of life, and the current position of the planets as they are in the, in the sky right now. You're listening to Main Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. I'm talking with Tom Yaroshuk, host of the Cosmic Curator feature that airs on Saturday mornings at 7.30 during the Saturday morning coffeehouse program here on WERU. So that's how you do an individual. How do you make that into something that every weekend tells everyone about what to expect in the week ahead? That's a very good question. So one of the people I met in my career was a person who invented, believe it or not, the daily horoscope. His name was Patrick Walker. He was born in Newark, but he was of Irish descent. And um, Is that that daily horoscope that used to be in newspapers, yeah. like back with the comics? Patrick Walker lived on an island in Greece. The island was Rhodos, Rhodes. And I visited him. We had, we had met during a talk show segment because he was promoting something. I forget what it was, but um, he had made a fortune with Murdoch. And back in those days, he would he would write up a horoscope and, and give it to someone at the airport with 50 pounds and ask him to deliver it until they flew back from Greece to, to London. His method was that he would look at planets that were changing signs because that was the most dramatic shift in energies. So that's a technique that I've borrowed. So when you sort of do a, a general, let's say, horoscope of a week or a month, what you do is you look at what the the patterns are. And the other way is to read the New York Times and see what's on the front page. Because we all know that astrologically, the pandemic was a really interesting combination of, of, of one planet, Saturn, going through Capricorn, which is a release of all kinds of karma. And we know what that was like, right? There were lockdowns and had to had to wear masks and you know all all these rules that were applied you know some would agree with it some would not agree with it but it was ostensibly to keep people safe saturn's a two and a half year cycle now it's an aquarius and it's like a whole different vibration of what that planet represents so to to do a weekly horoscope it's to look at where the planets are and where they've changed now that's what that means is that you you know you have the moon which changes signs every two and a half days. You have the sun which changes signs every thirty days, and um, the other planets will have whatever their transit period is to change too. So that's really what you look at. You look at the energy shifts. So uh, right now, I think in my last broadcast, I pointed out that there's something like six planets and fire signs. Well, what's going on in the world? Well, we we have these horrible fires and in Canada and a real shake and bake going on in the Southwest with Texas reaching a temperature of 112 degrees. Oh my gosh. So that's kind of the, the trick of that trade. Part of what I've been doing over the last few months on main currents is just letting people get to know some of the background of our hosts, because we have people with so much experience and knowledge working on these programs. 
And as especially with the hour-long public affairs hosts, they say usually very little themselves. They are more interviewing someone else. So this lets listeners get to know you a little bit better. It lets them get to know the programs a little bit better. But the other thing is there may be people listening who have an area of expertise that they've wondered how to do something like this. And you've just described all this broadcast experience, but most people don't have that when they come to it. Can you just talk about what your process is of putting together your program each week? Sure. First of all, it's one of the highlights of my week because it, it is a great feeling of being able to give something, you know, like just like just just as a gift or as, you know, that, that might sound highfalutin, but what it really is is that everybody has so much experience and if they look at their lives as like this French kitchen, as a friend of mine used to say, boy, there's all kinds of stuff that you can whip up. So I think with me, my process was that I just saw WERU as a really, you know, community radio, loving. It's not tainted with, you know, all those things which can taint corporate media and is a welcoming environment to really share what you know. And everybody knows something, whether it's like how to handle a, a two-year-old to how to bake a loaf of bread. and or I mean, it's just so – everybody has something in them that they know – very well and can share. So I would say the process really is just to just to dig down and to find out what it is that you'd like to share. And if you can come from a place where it's really motivated by a sense of giving as opposed to a sense of getting, you know, like, well, if I do this, I'll make some money, then I think you can really have a lot of fun and success and, you know, maybe even you know, have a, an impact in some way, shape or form on other people. Does it take a lot of time for you to put yours together? I'm finding that people have various processes. Yeah. Well, it's it's really easy for me because what it is is it's like looking at the stars every single day. So there are different programs, software programs that you can buy that, that chart the, the movement of the planets and the aspects and things like that. So what it is is it's like following the, the stars on a daily basis and then making note of what seems to be an exclamation point in the sky where something is like, whoa, watch out for this. This is going to be interesting. The tides are really behind the Penobscot because it's a full moon, and we know what that does to furry animals and people. Where do you think the word lunatic comes from? You know. Well, also, I mean, when, when the moon is full on the cardinal points, it's the best time to launch. It used to be the best time to launch ships in the olden days because um, so the Aries, Libra, um, January, Capricorn, uh, June, Cancer full moons, or July, Cancer full moons, the tides are higher because there's more energy to cardinal signs. It's also like one of the most violent full moons is usually in October, you know, that full moon because it's on the Aries Libra axis, which is all about relationships and, you know, relationships where you have the biggest, yeah, blow ups, I guess. <laughs> Anything else you want people to know about your short feature or anything else about yourself? The intention of the short feature really is just to help people get a handle on what's going on because as anyone who's been around knows, like there's some days that feel good and there are some days that feel bad. And, you know, there are days when you have really perfect clarity and there are days when you can't even put a sentence together and there are days when you're glad to see your kids and there are days where you just wish they wouldn't call. So astrology can really be helpful in helping to lay out a, a roadmap of like what to expect and when 
things will pass. Everything passes. What's that expression? This too shall pass. So yeah, it's good. To, it's 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 just a joy to be able to do this and to maybe help people understand what's going on. Well, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you, Amy. It was a pleasure. Up next, we talk with Donna Loring, longtime host of Wabanaki Windows, a public affairs show that airs on the fourth Tuesday of every month from 4 to 5 p.m. here on WERU. But first, here's a clip from the November 2022 show. Uh, that, that was a heroism uh, for, on the part of this old man who stood up uh, multiple times against the military generals that were sent by Boston, by the Massachusetts government, uh, General Lincoln was sent out, the same guy who sabered down the uh, Shays Rebellion. Um, these were the men that Boston sent out to intimidate the Penobscot, who had lost so many people themselves and whose role in the Revolutionary War was conveniently forgotten by the time. Uh, so the reason why history matters for people who are looking into the future is you learn, A, from the mistakes, you learn from the rights that were secured, you learn from the wrongs that were perpetrated and you try to leave a better space and place behind for future generations. That's our task, right? That's our task as standing between the past and the future. And that is how I see um, the value of uh, your hosting this uh, show, Donna, by perpetually adding yet another uh, show to the sovereignty that I think was originally planned for just one session, then became, then became three uh, and now we're at whatever, number 15. Wow. <laughs> Not that many, but <laughs> pretty okay. close. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe seven or eight. Uh, okay, so um, I'm just going to say one more thing. There's a quote I've been dying to use. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to end the show with it. Awesome. Uh, yeah, the, uh, you know, some things over, over the years historically never change. And St. Augustine, you know, he, he lived what? 354 to 430 AD. This is what St. Augustine said. He said, in the absence of justice, what is sovereignty but organized robbery? So (laughs) thank you. Thank you all for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, uh, and uh, you've been listening to Webinacki Windows. I want to thank professors Harold Prince, Darren Ranko, for uh, being with us uh, throughout this entire series and appreciate uh, all of your input and your thoughts. It's given us a lot to think about. And uh, I hope people will start this series from February February 23rd all the way up to try to understand some of these sovereignty nuances. That was a brief clip from last November's Wabanaki Windows. I spoke with host Donna Loring a few weeks ago. I knew that there was a gap, I guess you might say, between what people understood as who Wabanaki people were. And there seemed to be a a lack of of understanding about our issues too. I, you know, I I was on, uh, you know, before Rhonda passed. For listeners who may not be longtime listeners, Rhonda Fry originally hosted a program called Indigenous Voices on WERU. When she unfortunately passed at a pretty young age. Donna came in a while later and did a new version of a Wabanaki news program. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that Rhonda was probably the only one doing a show on, on Wabanaki 
voices or something at that time. So when when she passed, I think there was a there was a gap, a gap there, and um, I thought, well, I you know, I'd like to I'd like to do a show. And uh, and you know, and I I just thought, well, Wabanaki Windows is a a, a, good, a great name because it's sort of like a, a window is is you look in and you look out. So and I wanted it to be focused on uh, the Wabanaki perspective on the way that we saw things uh, and uh, and invite uh, not just Wabanaki people, but also people who were important to us that, that were helping us and uh, uh, were our allies. And also that we're doing things that would interest us. So, you know, like writing and uh, authoring books or whatever. So I thought, you know, that might be a good, a good way to, uh, to get some, education out there for people to help, help them to understand who we are because part of part of who I am I'm actually a member of the Penobscot Nation and a lot of the my life experience has to do with you know various various uh, life experiences I I, I uh, joined the military uh, growing up because basically there was no other place to go uh, on the, on in the within that community because the state had such a tight control on everything and the only way to get out into uh, you know sort of find some sort of education for yourself and to see the world or whatever to us it was the military and the majority, a lot of our people joined the military, both men and women. Um, and uh, my uncles joined. And so, you know, I would listen to them talk about their experiences. My father was in World War II. My uncle Frank was in the Korean War. And so I, it was just sort of like a natural progression for me to join the military. Um, and I did. I joined the Women's Army Corps. And... uh requested to be sent to Vietnam because all of these stories I heard was sort of intriguing. And, you know, it's one thing to actually hear these stories and another thing to actually be there. So I actually ended up being there at age 19. And uh, it was, uh, I'll say that that was probably one of the most important things in my life that I've done. Uh, basically for life experience, for meaningful issues. And when, you know, like sometimes when some things are happening, you can't really process it and see the importance. And I didn't realize that until years later. And I look back, I happened to uh, be invited to to uh, go back to Vietnam in 1995. And uh, I went with a group uh, called Francophone Des Affaires. And uh, Rachel Talbot Ross is a friend of mine. She's now the Speaker of the House. You know, told me about this trip. And uh, and Severin Beliveau was one, and there was a few others. And uh, I thought, that might be really interesting to do. So I went. And... Uh, and it was sort of like it was it was uh, like a deja vu kind of thing. You 
flying into the airport. It was like 110 degrees there and uh, brought back a lot of, uh, a lot of memories. And I, I happened to ask about where I had been stationed, Long Bend, and nobody would tell me anything about Long Bend. So it was almost like it didn't exist. It was uh, one of the largest army bases in the world at the time, in 1968 when I was there. How long were you there? Well, I was just there for a year. I was there, but I was there during the Tet Offensive in 1968. That was when the North Vietnamese, uh, you know, attacked all of the bases and whatever, and um, it was. It was quite a, a battle going on there for a couple of weeks. And uh, we were cut off. And Long Ben were cut off from communication. And uh, my word, word had it that we'd been overrun. And we hadn't been. Uh, we just didn't have the, they just cut off our communications. But, you know, I mean, that, that uh, experience in my life, I didn't, I really didn't know the importance of that till I sort of like went back to Vietnam and uh, started thinking about overall. And, I'm, and the funny thing was, when I was there, they had this TV sh- series in, in Vietnam, the TV series, and I believe it it was the uh, it was about the Nixon tapes or something. So I thought, that's really strange, you know, being in Vietnam watching this uh, series at night. So I'm thinking, well, you know, this is not an accident. But anyway, uh, I get to thinking about stuff. And, you know, when I got back, this is before the legislature. It, it struck me all of a sudden that uh, here, you know, what we suffer here in Maine, the Wabanaki people, you know, we... We suffered from being invaded by a foreign country. And and it struck me that, you know, here I was uh, in Vietnam as part of a foreign invader uh, invading their country. And, uh, you know, we used to have these nicknames for them. We call them gooks or whatever. And it's a very derogatory uh, meaning. And, uh, and it's one of the, the things... In connected with that is like a, a foreigner, like we're we're invading their country, we're calling them a foreign whatever, uh, and it's sort of like, you know, here I was doing the same thing, and it sort of made me realize that one of the things that we did was we dehumanized them, and. This is what's happening to the Wabanaki people is that we're being dehumanized. And uh, if you dehumanize a population, you refer, you know, you refer to them as animals or whatever. And it's easy to eliminate them, you know, and not feel guilty about it. So when I was in the legislature, I, I was determined that that wouldn't happen to the Wabanaki, that we would not be discarded and marginalized and forgotten about. So everything I did in the legislature was to keep the Wabanaki, particularly my tribe, Penobscot, keep us on the front 
front line so that people would see us. And uh, we, we actually, you know, we got, I got some uh, things passed the uh, education bill that educated young people about who we are. We also got the uh, state of the tribes address the first time in, in Maine history since Maine became a state that the tribal chiefs were allowed to speak to the state legislature, uh, which I find pretty amazing that, you know, I think it was 180 something years or whatever at that time. And, uh, They'd never heard the chief speak. Did you, you came back from Vietnam. Was that what inspired you to get into politics or no, no, no. were the I, things I, in between there? I had yes. no desire to get into politics. I took a job with the Bowdoin College Security as a chief. And uh, while I was down there, uh, the uh, Penobscot governor, the, the term was governor at the time. Uh, contacted me and, and uh, asked if I would run for the legislature. Um, and I I said, well, I I don't know anything about that. He said, well, come on up and we'll talk. So, you know, I had, had I talked with him and uh, he's and I said, look, I, I'm not a politician. I don't know anything about this. And so he, he said, well, you know, Donna, I really want you to run for this. I said, all right, I'll run, but I'm not going to campaign. So I didn't campaign because I, I had been the police chief. People knew who I was. So I thought if I win, I win. If I, you know, and I ran against this guy who was uh, uh, going to his first year in law school. And uh, he, I, I won. He, he would have like these uh, spaghetti dinners and stuff and go around to houses and, you know, did all kinds of stuff. And uh, the election came and I won by four vote, votes. And we, I fully expected him to contest and have a recount, but he didn't. And I think he probably didn't because he realized what a handful of, you know, how busy he'd be in, in law school. So, you know, that's how I got into it. I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> I kind of like <laughs> fell into it. <laughs> that's and, and didn't campaign and it just happened. That's pretty amazing. You're listening to Main Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. I'm speaking with Donna Loring, host of Wabanaki Windows, a public affairs show that airs on the fourth Tuesday of every month from 4 to 5 p.m. here on WERU. It's also re-aired on WMPG in Southern Maine. When you were in Augusta, was the tribal representative allowed to vote at that time? Maybe you could say a little bit about the voting history, because I don't think people realize how recent it is that uh, tribal members in the state were not allowed to vote at all. And I, I believe, if I remember correctly, the tribal representatives also were more there to, I don't know what it was, symbolic kind of thing for a period of time, rather than being allowed to actually participate, introduce bills and so forth. Or do I have that wrong? No, that's that's right. And uh, yeah, when I actually, I wrote a book about my experiences. I started writing about things that happened during the during the day or whatever each day because I thought whoever comes in as representative after me really should know what they're getting into. Because when I came in, I 
I was clueless. I didn't know. And so I started writing things down sort of as a diary. And as I, as I wrote things, I realized, you know, the public should really see this. They should read what's happening here. And so I turned it into like a, a memoir or a journal kind of thing. And it's called, it, it got published. It's called, uh, in the shadow of the eagle, a tribal representative in Maine. And that was in 2008. But, you know, if you read, you read what I wrote during those, those days and you see what's happening now, there's not that you, that could have been written today. That's how things just basically stay the same. And that's what a lot of your program has covered over the years. And most recently, you've done a several-part series. I believe it's nine parts. Is that total, or is it still ongoing? No. I did a series on sovereignty, and I I, I meant to count how many. Uh, I, there was a seven-part in part one, and then there was a second part. I think that was like four to five, six shows. <clears throat> on sovereignty because it's it's called unpacking sovereignty and it's such a, a diverse subject and i wanted to just take a look at it historically from the uh wabanaki perspective i had harold prince on and then brought in uh, darren ranko and a few others as we progressed now, who are Harold and uh, Daryl? Because I know they're on a lot of your programs. As, oh, yeah, Harold, they're almost like the resident experts. Right, they are the resident experts. So Harold Prince is a, a archaeologist. He's a, a very well known in the Wabanaki communities. He's an expert witness in law cases. He's a anthropology emeritus professor at the University of Kansas, and he's been with the Wabanaki communities now doing work with them, whatever, for years and years. And then there's Darren Ranko is a Penobscot. He is an anthropologist, and he's the chair of Wabanaki, the Wabanaki Center. At UMO. Yes, UMO. And he's a, <clears throat> just got his full uh, tenure, so he's tenured there now. So, yeah, so that uh, I wanted to just really take a close look at sovereignty. So we did that. So the sovereignty series was followed up by this series on ice. One of the things that you have done that's really remarkable for this series is you have discovered proof of an effort to just basically make the main tribes go away at the legislative level. Yeah, the uh, the thing with this is that it, it it can be you can you can see something right in front of you in plain sight and not really realize what it is. And I truly believe that my life experiences in law enforcement, in the military, in the legislature have sort of allowed me to have this expertise to, to see what I'm really looking at. And uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for these transcripts, but what happened was with COVID, uh, COVID sort of helped things along. And with COVID, you know, you couldn't go to these, walk into these uh, libraries or whatever to do your research. You have to like request it over the internet. So I, I remembered I had this uh, hard copy of the Proctor report and I wanted it did, I, you know, I, I understood that they were digitalizing things, 
So I, I emailed and asked for a digital copy of the Proctor Report. And they basically said, what do you want? What piece do you want? And I said, I want the whole thing. And they said, well, you know, we don't really have it all uh, digitized, but if you give us the section you want. So I said, well, I really want the whole thing. So then I called the clerk that I'd known in the legislature and said, hey, I, I didn't even know if that person was working there still. And I called and I, and I said, can, can you help me get this uh, uh, this uh, Proctor report? I, I think they've digitized it and I want the whole thing. He said, sure, let me see what I can do. And he got back to me and he said, you'll have it by the end of the week. So by the end of the week, I got a uh, notice that, uh, you know, here's the Proctor report and there are uh, uh, papers surrounding it. Do you want that? And I said, absolutely. And that's how I got the transcripts because they were surrounding. They were in the same, I would guess, same box as the Proctor report. Now, what was the Proctor report to begin with? The Proctor report was a report by a guy named Ralph Proctor, who the Legislative Research Committee hired to uh, research the relationship between the tribes and the state in various subject areas, like who, you know, do we owe them any money? Um, and this uh, is like in 1940-something, right? 1942 was World War uh, II. And uh, this legislative research committee got together because the state was trying to uh, slim down its budget for the purposes of, of war. Uh, and there was a whole bunch of uh, departments and different things they were looking at budget-wise. And the uh, Indian, the Indians were was one of those items. So the legislative research committee called in people to testify about their relationship with the tribes, and they they uh, they used a, a a bill, an existing bill, sort of to uh, back up to to use as an, a, a reason that they were looking at this. But in the bill they they were using was a bill that would take away uh, tribal membership from Indian women if they married white men. And it would also take away the uh, right for their children to be members of the tribe. So they were looking at that bill, and they they called in the uh, director of. Uh, so sorry, wait a minute, just for a second. Does so basically they would remove someone's identity if they if they married, and so I mean that's isn't that genocide? Exactly, that's what the whole series is about. We're looking at these transcripts. And the, they called in the director of human uh, well health and welfare to testify about to to tell them about their relationship with the tribes and everything that he could tell them. So we go over that transcript. Another person they called in was the attorney general Frank Cowan, and we go over that transcript. So now. Uh, th- and at that time, after they talked with Cowan and McDonald, uh, they realized that we, you know, hey, we really don't know a heck of a lot about this relationship. So let's let's get some kind of report on it. And that's when they called in uh, Proctor, 
who did a report in six weeks. I mean, it's quite a long, long story about this, but he did an extensive amount of research within six weeks, building on this other research that the Snows, Margaret and Dorothy Snow did in, in 3536. Anyway, the, the thing about this is that these Snow sisters, not sisters, they were really cousins. Uh, they were actually, they did their report. They handed it in. They were both killed in a car accident, hit and run. The report that the materials they did, a lot of it was destroyed. But some of it, I think, and I'm fairly certain, I can't actually prove it, but I think uh, Proctor used a lot of their research in his report because it starts out with the same sentence. So that's so the Proctor report was is infamous about how it refers to Indians did report on the state of their housing and in their health and and it also also specified lands that were taken by the state illegally. It's pretty extensive, so that's why I wanted that report to begin with. And these are these transcripts that came with it was just icing on the cake, and it was it's like it's like the Nixon tapes that basically prove that the state was out to eliminate the tribes. And they talked about, they, they talked about doing it. They didn't talk about killing them, but they talked about eliminating membership, dispersing tribal members into the local towns, cutting their lots up and selling them. And so uh, that was there. That's what they wanted to do. And that's why I call the series isolation control and elimination ice. Mm-hmm. And we're in the middle of that now. And those are on the archives at weru.org, the ones that have been done so far. If anyone listening has not had a chance to hear them, you can subscribe to podcasts and Wabanaki Windows will be sent directly to your device whenever it airs. But it also is always available for downloading or listening online on the archives. And Wabanaki Windows is on the Firth, the Firth, (laughs) the Fourth. (laughs) Tuesday of every month from 4 to 5 p.m. So you'll be continuing to cover that for the foreseeable future then. Yes, we've got the the Proctor Report transcript where he actually testifies before the committee. So, yeah, then that's the last uh, transcript we have. And then there's the results of what the Legislative Research Committee recommended. So we'll cover that too. And this is relevant today still. I, a lot of what you've talked about, the sovereignty series that goes before that, this is sort of a basis for putting it all in context. Yes. I'm really appreciative of the work that you do. And I hope that WERU listeners, I know the ones that have heard your program, recognize its value. We're doing this to try to get everybody else on board so they'll be aware, not only that the program exists, but just the depth of expertise that you bring to it and also the amount of work and research you've done for it. So just before we wrap up, what would you tell someone who has a topic that they are really interested in, that they know a lot about, maybe they're thinking about doing a show on WERU, how much time does it take? What's your process like? How's it been over the years? Well, I I just, my process is I pick people who know, uh, who are experts in the areas, who know what they're talking about. And yeah, it's fairly easy. You know, you just see if they'll be on the show. So you have these two 
specials that you did that aired, Wabanaki Windows news specials that aired in July on the on the 19th and 20th. Those are up on the archives now. What can people hear on those? They addressed uh, LD 2004 and the governor's veto letter of of, uh, of that particular bill and uh, the, the reasons that she gave in her letter to the legislature and also the tribal leadership response, what they, what they felt the public should know about that letter. So that's, that's what the, that's about. And, and I think it, it also reveals a lot of the, if, if you've listened to the past shows of sovereignty and ice and whatever, it's no surprise what this letter says. As a matter of fact, it just falls. It's like a missing piece of the puzzle. It just falls right into place. And I think it's really important for people to listen to those two shows. Those are at weru.org. Go to the Public Affairs Archives. Wabanaki Windows airs on the fourth Tuesday of every month from four to five o'clock. And you can subscribe to the podcast if you want to make sure that you get it just sent right to you every time it airs. Donna, thanks for taking time today. I know you're really busy. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Donna Loring, host of Wabanaki Windows, which airs on the fourth Tuesday of every month from 4 to 5 p.m. In the first half of the program, you heard from the cosmic curator himself, Tom Yaroschuk. His short feature airs during the Saturday morning coffeehouse programs every week at 7.30. If they have inspired you to consider doing a program here yourself, you can sign up for our new volunteer orientation by emailing info at weru.org or ask me questions at news at weru.org if you'd like to learn more. You've been listening to Maine Current's Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. We are on the first Tuesday of every month from 4 to 5 p.m. and also available on the archives app and via podcasting. The WERU program schedule is also at weru.org if you're having a hard time keeping all these days straight. I'm Amy Brown. Keep it tuned here to your independent media, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming at WERU.org.